Incinerator Room, a new science fiction book in the style of George Orwell and H.G. Wells, is full of intrigue, adventure, and conspiracy theory. Available now. Living in the Unistate, Travis felt as though life, all his life, was mundane. Then, one day, he spotted something that would forever change his life. The Incinerator Room. The audiobook, narrated by Brad Grahowski, is available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. Order your copy now. Paperback and Kindle available on Amazon. Will Travis change the past? Save the future? Or will life in the Unistate remain the same? The Incinerator Room, written by Joshua Olson and Penelope Ann. Available now. Hey, good morning, guys, and welcome to an exciting installment of the Bowling Frog Podcast. Today, Josh and I are joined by a very special guest, an expert on the JFK assassination and all that surrounds it, hailing all the way from England, Mr. Patrick Collins. Patrick, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, Tom and Josh. Absolutely. Glad to have you. So how are you doing today, sir? Has the weather gotten a little less volatile than uh, than we spoke um, yesterday? Less hail, less rain? You can never trust the English weather. I mean, you could be sunbathing last week and it was snowing yesterday. Um, Typically, April is quite a nice month and it's starting to get warm. But uh, this has been the coldest in living memory, I think. But uh, yeah, I mean, the news uh, over here has been dominated by uh, Prince Philip. um, And uh, we're getting news. We do get quite a lot of uh, American news, you know, with the... the, um, the Minneapolis uh, court case with the policeman getting quite a lot of coverage. Um, sure. And a lot of people will be watching the Masters from Augusta today, including me. You know, Oh, nice. Yeah. So, there you go. Yeah, the Derek Chauvin case, like you said, is uh, dominating a lot of the news channels, and for good measure. Mm. Yeah, the Masters, I'll tell you what, that's a, I've actually been to that course. It's beautiful out there, Patrick. You would love it. So I would love to go. And um, I... The day, I hear that it's incredibly hilly. Is that right? It is. Yeah, it is. They uh, they take everything serious out there in terms of you know, all their horticulture and you know all their trees and plants and everything. I mean, there mm-hmm. it's it's kind of funny story, real quick. I uh, uh, my, basically my company, our company, did a project out there about five six years ago, and they weren't worried about. They, they gave like a story. About it. They said, "Hey guys, look." Bottom line, if you make a mistake of somebody's digging and they cut a power line, that's a big problem. But they said, honestly, somebody did that last year. No one really cared. But somebody drove a semi trying to back in and deliver freight, and they actually broke a branch off of just a – I don't even know what kind of tree it was, and they went crazy. So they said, you, you really have to watch out for everything around there. So 
they obviously take great pride in keeping that course in tip-top shape, and uh, they take great pride in everything that surrounds it as far as all the trees and plants and all the grass. And just the groundskeepers, they really get irate if you, uh, if you walk a certain way or drive a path down a path a certain way. So it's pretty interesting. A lot of people watch it for the scenery, including myself. You know, I mean, yeah. I think it's as, it's as a bigger part of, of the whole thing and just seeing the, the beautiful course and the azaleas and all that. And, and I mean, it's just phenomenal. I mean, there's yeah. a few places in golf like oh, that. Absolutely. But, uh, anyway. So, so do you play? Do you play in England? I, I used to, yeah. I was lucky. I had a cousin who was a golf pro. And oh, wow. um, he was a pro at a club in Sheffield in Yorkshire. Um, called Hallamshire, and uh, many, many years later, Danny Willett, who won the Masters, was the pro at um, Hallamshire, and he lives lives in Florida now. But he married a, a girl from my hometown, and um, oh, yeah. so I had lessons when I was twelve, through to about sixteen, and I think I got my handicap was about nine. Oh wow! Now that's, uh, that's pretty I, good. I, I, I imagine I could barely swing a golf club now, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, join the club. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. that's how Josh and I play. We can barely yeah. swing. Maybe a little maybe a little goonie golf, a little putt-putt. But, yeah, but anyway, we digress. Uh, Patrick, we wanted to give uh, you an opportunity to tell our audience a little bit more about you. And uh, we'll delve into, obviously, more of the JFK. And, you know, uh, got some questions for you. It's, it's a very interesting topic. Uh, but just tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got involved. In, uh, so in terms of the JFK case... Tanner, Josh, you know, I, I got interested in it in the early 80s. And um, I wrote to a couple of authors, one of them whom was Anthony Summers, who wrote a book called Conspiracy. And another one was David Lifton, who wrote a book called Best Evidence. And he put forward the theory that Kennedy's body was altered to hide shots from the front. And it was a, a very eccentric theory, but it was a million seller. And uh, it kind of put the JFK assassination back on the map. I think things had gone quiet. Um, by about 1980, there were probably about 300 books written on it. Now there are about 800 specifically on the, wow. on the assassination. And about 2,000 in total, if you include those ones about the CIA, Castro, the Cold War, the mob, um, military-industrial complex, and all those other theories... In 2013, there was a poll of American adults, and it um, showed a, a 60-40 split between in favour of conspiracy and the lone assassin scenario. Um, my interest started um, in the early 80s, and I ended up doing a postgraduate degree um, period of history, and I wrote my thesis on the Kennedy assassination. And I, for that, I, I got a scholarship to go to Dallas and stayed with some family friends there. And I met uh, 23, 24 witnesses who actually saw the assassination. And I met about another 30 people who'd worked in law enforcement, um, met some medical people who worked at Parkland Hospital where Kennedy was taken. And so I started writing my own book about it about um, 15 years ago. And um, with the internet sort of blossoming, a lot of um, JFK forums uh, started to crop up. And in fact, Amazon did, Amazon had a thing called Amazon Discussions in just post 2000. They've stopped it now, but that was a very good debating forum. And it was a very good 
uh, have a very nice layout, good search facilities, and you could look up past comments and history and people. Facebook was never really designed for that, but there are a, a good number of JFK assassination Facebook forums. Um, some tend to be rather eccentric um, and full mm-hmm. of people with a lot of yeah. Um, a lot of anger, crazy, yeah. Yeah. and I think it's probably the same for a lot of sure. subjects that um, um, you know are sensitive and uh, cause deep feelings. Um, there's two or three that I'm on that are moderated and that are very good, and they tend to be uh, populated by people, older people who were around at the time who've studied the case for decades. And it might surprise you to know it's kind of ironic in a way that I think that. Many people who really look at it deeply, and I'm talking about people who've read hundreds of books, who have got relationships with people who were involved in it, maybe in Dallas, in Washington, D.C., most start out believing that there was probably a conspiracy. The majority end up thinking that there probably wasn't. And if you if you look at the evidence dispassionately, um, it's rather boring, and I, I know to say that actually, uh, after all these years, it's it's very supportive of Oswald acting alone, and there being no other shooters. Um, I think the more sensible authors and followers of the case, and that would include Hope myself, I would never rule out a conspiracy because you can't know what old um, was connected to at that time. Um, most right. of his time is unaccounted for in the weeks leading up to the assassination. He went to Mexico City last weekend in um, September, uh, first, the first week of October. He stayed for about five days and he went there ostensibly um, to a Cuban visa and a Russian visa. Mm-hmm. He was a big Castro activist and he wanted to get to Cuba and um, Allegedly, he became angry in the Cuban embassy and supposedly made some kind of loose threat towards JFK uh, in a demonstrate his seriousness about being anti-American and pro-Castro. Um, unfortunately, there's no there's no real strong evidence to support that other than the word of the people that worked there. And um, their accounts vary. So we have potentially a threat late September, early October. Um, there were threats on Kennedy several every week. And there, were, there was an alleged plot in Chicago and Miami um, a few weeks before Dallas. Um, but for the Dallas um, situation, it's interesting to know that Oswald two and a half weeks before Friday the 22nd when Kennedy was shot, went to the FBI building and left a note that threatened that he would take action, bothering his wife, who was Russian. She was called Marina. And Oswald was 24. Marina was about 21. They got a new baby and a two and a half year old daughter. It's interesting to consider that if he was planning the assassination at that point, two and a half weeks before Kennedy was shot, would he be threatening the FBI? And I think the answer is no. But it's possible that he had a connection in Mexico City. It could have been an anti-Castro-Cuban connection or a Cuban connection. And in turn, that 
person could have been linked to a renegade DIA um, agent, for example. These people could have maybe had six or 12 young dotted around the South for when Kennedy was campaigning for re-election um, and tried to persuade them to take a pot shot. And, and that, I think, is the most likely um, scenario. I, I've come to the conclusion that the, um, the more extreme conspiracy theories kind of fly out the window. Um, and I'll just tell you why I think that is just my opinion is if you really study the shooting itself and you look at the weapon, the, the Italian Carcano rifle that was found on the sixth floor, and you understand that in reality it was a perfectly deadly weapon at 300 yards, the Italian infantry killed thousands of people with it in World War II, it, it had tendency to misfire or jam if you operated the bolt too quickly, but it was effective when it was working. Oswald did practice with the rifle. He mail-ordered the rifle in the March of 1963, and it's thought that he bought it to shoot the right-wing um, General Walker. And he failed. Um, in, in every area of the Kennedy assassination, you have these little annoying mysteries that turn up um, over and over. So back can to I, the assassination. Can I ask you, uh, Patrick? Uh, sure. That's one thing that really uh, stands out to me is the ammunition used, right? You said it's a 6.5 millimeter round, uh, yeah. but I've seen that the, the hole in the back of Kennedy's head measured at six millimeters is what's, what is that sort of discrepancy can be chalked up to, or how does that, how is that reconciled? Oh, you mean like a 6.5 millimeter um, diameter and a six millimeter entry? Yeah. Like I've, I've read that um, the, uh, the, the, the bullet is too big to make that hole. Furthermore, with the with the with the multiple sh so three shots fired and the two entry wounds, one that appeared to enter the back of his neck and come out the front of his throat. Uh, obviously, the diameter. Uh, and, and I'm I'm a firearms enthusiast. So I'm very familiar with the six five okay. six five Creedmoor round. Yeah. Um, and with that said, to to piggyback off of Josh, it's more of just both of us asking a question to you as an expert in this field is to say that very thing as to why the exit wound in the throat was nominal compared to in size compared to the exit wound uh, in his skull that fractured yeah. a big portion of it off to the trunk of the car, which Jackie Onassis grabbed. Seems like yeah. different rounds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's a view that is, is aired regularly. Um, there's a book called the JFK myths, which is written by one of the U.S.'s leading ballistics called Larry Sturdivant. And he goes into great detail on all this. So the hole in the back of the head, you know, back here, is a small puncture wound, which they measured at the autopsy in six millimetres. Whether or not that's perfectly accurate, I don't know, but let's say that it is. Uh, they probably use some very fine-grade calipers to measure that. Um, it's not unusual for a bullet wound to shrink slightly. Um, after death, you know, there is a contraction. That's all I can tell you about that. But I can okay. tell you that um, the bullet that hits the head, um, as it passes through a distance of about this much, about seven inches or so, um, it it exits the, the temple area, and that bone was beveled in such a way that it, it showed that the bullet passed out of the temple. Um, it's the shock wave that follows the bullet that 
the pressure wave has got some needs to go somewhere and it hits the weakest part of the skull which is the fissures between the parietal bone and the occipital bone at the back and it and it blasts those out which is why the head wound is tangential and it's actually on the side of the head the, the left side um contrary to sort of popular conspiracy thinking almost all of the Dallas doctors did accept that um their recollections that the, the hole in the head was slightly further back than they remembered it. It's not unusual for them to, to make a mistake in terms of their, their recollection. They're not focused on the head wound. They're, they're focused on airway, blood transfusion, and, you know, right. trying to do what they can do to save yeah. the patient, which was hopeless. So sure. the, the bullet wound to the skull, which is a, a fairly dense bone, it is a totally different physical of circumstances to split, hitting the back, um, grazing the top right side of the lung and passing out through the neck. Um, and Dr. John Latimer wrote a very good book called Kennedy and Lincoln, and he goes into great detail on the um, on the neck wound. And it's called a shored wound, S-H-O-R-E-D, because the skin was held quite tightly in place by the shirt. And that's why it gave the appearance of being punctuated in an entrance, which is why to Perry, who did the tracheostomy, initially thought it might have been a, uh, an entry wound. Because what they were thinking at the time, that they didn't know there was a wound in the back. They didn't turn him over. So they had a wound here and a big hole in the head. They thought that maybe he'd been shot from the front, from a low position. They, did, they didn't know that he'd been shot in Dealey Plaza. They just He'd been shot in the car on the parade. They had no understanding of the layout where the bullet came possible. from. Yeah. You had mentioned, uh, obviously, that Oswald had purchased this gun and it was mailed to him. I, I found it a bit interesting, and I didn't know if you could speak into this, but you know, he had two forms of ID. One was under his, you know, the name that we know, Lee Harvey Oswald, and the other was under Alec James Heidel, I believe is how you pronounce it. And yeah. I was just curious, uh, you know, why that could be. I mean, obviously, the initial. Uh, answer to that most likely would be because if you're going to purchase something to use it for something like this, you're naturally not going to use your name. And then there's some thought around the fact that um, this could have been a false ID created by the CIA Mm. and that, you know, Oswald was a CIA operative. Again, that's where you get into some of the conspiracies, right? And, And also I think there's three kind of big uh, concept as conspiracies that surround this. One's not so much a conspiracy, it's the conclusion, which was everything that we discussed thus far about Oswald acting alone. Um, and then, you know, furthermore, you know, could it have been something along the lines of the CIA? Uh, everything that, that they were upset about, you know, the Bay of Pigs and, and basically everything that, um, you know, Kennedy had done, uh, to get, to get rid of, you know, some of the, uh, you know, the general, um, General Cobble and General Cobble's brother was actually the mayor of Dallas. Uh, yeah, you yeah. Know, also, he fired Alan Dulles. So th- there's a lot that surrounds the CIA in this. Right. And I think the third and correct me if I'm wrong, probably most popular theory um, would be that, you know, mob, the mob and the mafia had a lot of ties to this and everything that uh, through the Bay of Pigs that inversely affected the mafia and and really 
lost out millions after being kicked out of Cuba. You know, Sam Giacano had multiple million dollar uh, you know, industries from shrimp to hotels uh, and all that was lost due to the Bay of Pigs. So there's a lot of thought and concepts around the mafia ties to this. Uh, is it fair to say those are the three most popular, quote unquote, conspiracies yeah, that surround so. JFK? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's also um, a theory that the KGB okay. uh, yeah. instructed Oswald to shoot Kennedy. Yeah. And the, the, the head of the Romanian secret right. um, guy, I can't remember his name properly, Ion something, wrote a book post-2000, and he had very detailed information regarding the JFK case, and he thought that Oswald was asked to do the shooting by um, the KGB. I'd just go back to the um, the actual shooting itself. If you really study it deeply, and, you know, because we haven't got much time, and, you know, you're not a, a sort of naturally drawn to conspiracy, and you just accept the, the, the ballistics and the medical evidence as honourable, um, there's no doubt that there were two shots that were fired from the rear that struck that was a Pruder frame 223 and 313, and that the Carcano rifle was used to fire those bullets. And um, there's almost certainly a missed shot fired about four seconds before the back shot, giving a total of about nine seconds. Um, a lot of conspiracy theorists focus on the time difference between the back shot and the head shot, which is five seconds, and that Oswald couldn't have fired three shots in five seconds. Most of the people who were there thought the shots were fired over about an eight to ten second time period. And most of them, contrary to popular conspiracy thinking, uh, thought that they were about evenly spaced and not bunched. So yeah, from the point of view of solving the actual shooting, you have one shooter using the Carcano rifle in the book depository. Oswald carried a package to work that morning. Um, the rifle was his. It was owned by him. Yeah, I suppose it could have been a fake, um, and he knew, knew nothing of it, and someone else used his rifle. Couldn't rule that out. But, uh, personally, I think that's uh, remote, and the reason why I think is because of his actions after the shooting. Um, he behaved like a guilty man. You know, he fled. He didn't seek assistance from the police. He never said, wife or brother, I'm innocent, which most innocent uh, people under arrest do say to their uh, families and friends when they're visited. Um, he went home, got a pistol, and shot a policeman. And some people say, well, he didn't shoot the policeman, but the revolver that he was arrested with was the weapon that killed Officer Tippett. Um, so a thirty-eight revolver, correct? I think he bought a thirty-eight right. revolver, he revolver when he bought the somewhere rifle. Somewhere in Los Angeles, yeah. and a rifle from Klein's okay. Sporting Goods in Chicago. You know, uh, Gerald Posner said that the case against Tom Tippett was ironclad. I would, I would agree with him. You know, most of the people who really study that, um, you know, accept that Oswald killed Tippett. Now, if you ask yourself, you know, if, he, if he'd been set up, I mean, it strikes me as being unlikely. Not impossible, but unlikely. And he did resist arrest, and he did try to shoot the officer who grappled with him in the theatre. I'm curious because, you know, when you look at a lot of the documentation and furthermore, even the audio mm -hmm. where he claims to be a quote unquote patsy, which is basically a fall guy or someone who's you know being set up. Um, and I also heard where he had denied that. So it contradicts a little bit. And you're the expert on this. I'm not. I'm just asking the question, but it contradicts a bit of what you were saying about how he 
more or less did not admit saying, hey, I'm not at fault. I did not do this. He was referring yes, to the fact that the reason that he'd been arrested was because he'd been in the Soviet Union and he out and that the Dallas police had arrested him because of that, ah. thinking that he would be the assassin. That was what he was saying. Actually, he was arrested in the theater because he was a suspect in the killing of the Tippett shooting. Yeah, that's the best answer I can give you. That I think that is the reality. I don't think cool. he was a patsy for the JFK okay. shooting. His behavior certainly doesn't show that he was completely set up. Um, he, he leaves about three minutes after the shots. He goes outside and he doesn't ask anyone what's happened. He tells the police a couple of hours later that he was in the lunchroom when he's polit politically inspired guy. Would he be in a lunchroom sitting inside missing the parade? I don't think so. Yeah. Well, Patrick, this has been great. Okay, uh, I really appreciate you joining us today and taking time out of your personal life to come on. And come on, everybody, let's jump in. The water's not too hot according to them. Social scores